podcast one production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast where we, we choose an international issue and we break it down. Simple as that. And this man makes it very easy for anyone to understand and very accessible. Dr. Keith Suda, um, you've been talking about these issues for decades. They're at the back of your mind. I don't even know. You could ask him about anything that is going on in the world and he'll know the history. Uh, that's why you've got a big brain in there. <laughs> um, and a couple of PhD on the issue. And we've worked together in media for a long time. I've been working in radio and television my, most of my life. So... I ask the questions that you give the answers to that some people would not know, but otherwise you just fill people in because that's your skill set, just knowing what people would want to know. Today, we're talking food deserts. Now, look, this is a learning curve for me. Never heard of the phrase, but they exist. They are disproportionately affecting lower socioeconomic people around the world. And it's somewhat of a health crisis, isn't it? It is, absolutely. So, you know, we've monitored the Black Lives Matter struggle going on in the United States and I've expressed my concern that it's going to be very easy for that campaign to get diverted into side avenues. For example, pulling down the statues of Confederate generals. That will then mean for conservative politicians and uh, some campaigners that they spend their time discussing tactics rather than the big issue. So we've looked at the way in which racism is systemic within the United States. The New York Times is talking about 1619, which is 400 years of slaves in the United States. I go back to 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and it's the beginning of this 500-year period of world history when white folk started to move out around the world and started to colonise the world, which is why you and I with our white faces are here in Blackfella country. Now, one of the deeper issues that we need to look at in the United States is the whole question of what are called food deserts. So a food desert is a term coined by the US Department of Agriculture. We have them also, by the way, here in Australia. In the United States, where most of the research has been done, 25 million Americans in 6,500 urban and rural areas lack access to affordable, healthy food. And this in turn contributes to high levels of obesity and other diet-related conditions such as diabetes and heart uh, disease. And so this, for me, is one of the, the subsets of the whole issue of racism. Remember, in an earlier program, we dealt with redlining. So redlining was the response by town planners with the black migration after the American Civil War, people moving north in the search for employment, The perception was that if a black family moved into a white area, it would lower property values. And so town planners started to redline their cities. So a redline district would be a district which was solely for black folk. And so the black folk would be trapped in that area. They would not be allowed to buy properties in white areas. And real estate agents cooperated in all of this over the decades, that way that they kept up prices in certain areas while the black areas uh, were the ones that um, uh, had poor infrastructure, uh, poor expenditure, high crime rates, etc. Also a byproduct of redlining, and it's quite amazing when you look at the, the mapping out of the food deserts with the redline districts, is the overlap that exists. In other words, that you've got areas that were redlined, in other words, expressly identified for black folk, 
and how many of those food deserts that have now been identified in the United States are actually within those red-lined areas. There's a clear coincidence. In other words, that black children grow up living on fast food and sugary drinks, and they take that as a norm, but they then become parents and they raise the kids in the same way. Now, because of redlining and because of the lower income, um, black parents who really do want to get fresh fruit and vegetables will need to journey long distances, usually by public transport, which is itself inadequate, in order to buy the fresh fruit and vegetables to bring it back home. It's much easier just to go down to the local convenience store on the corner. And, of course, on the opposite corner, you've got a a pharmacy, a drugstore. So as the food is killing you, you're going to the drugstore to get all your tablets to counteract the effect of the bad food. And they're all on your doorstep. It's the irony. It's an absolute irony. And so we're now beginning to see people paying attention to these so-called food deserts and how they are contributing to the deeper crisis within American society. So, yes, we have police violence against blacks, and clearly we've been very critical of all of that. We've also looked in this series how difficult it is to bring criminal charges against black police officers, but you've got deeper issues involved, and you've got to find ways of being good role models to get parents to feed the kids good food. If a a child goes to school malnourished, the child will start to faint mid-morning in class. We have that problem happening in Australia. Australian Red Cross provides breakfasts to Australian children. We're one of the richest countries in the world, and yet we are providing breakfasts to school children because the kiddies are fainting because they're not getting enough food at breakfast because the parents have all got you know drugs in their arms and all sorts of things. They're, it's poor parenting. And so the kiddies are going to be malnourished. They're not going to learn very well. And then you've got your next generation of problems for the social welfare system. And just adding to that as well, Keith, of course, obesity now a major problem in Australia and a lot of the areas that are affected by obesity are not near the CBD. They're very much the suburban. It's a suburban issue. Well, it can be, but it can also be an inner city issue. In the United States, it's an inner city. It can be an inner city issue. Oh. Yeah, so... You know, you and I live in obviously areas where there's plenty of fresh fruit available, but then we live in middle-class areas, Mm. right? So these 6,500 food deserts in the United States have been mapped out to being areas for poor blacks and poor whites. It's really quite a fascinating study. What I find intriguing is the way in which we're now getting more attention paid to food deserts. In other words, that sure, we need to focus on Black Lives Matters, the whole problem of police brutality, But we also need to look at the deeper systemic problems that are involved and uh, and how we can start to tackle that. And I've come across some good, inspiring stories of people who are tackling the food deserts and making food deserts more of an issue. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're addressing the issue of food deserts today. Now, this is a pretty interesting one because it is it is the notion that – it's not even a notion. It is the fact that poor people – and we're using America as an example for this in this, in this week's episode, but there are instances of it happening in Australia as well. 
But very poor black and white people in America um, do not get the nutrition they need because they live in areas where they grow up on fast food, they have no fresh produce, it's too expensive, it's out of their reach. And, and it's a systemic issue. And then health issues stem from that. Mm. All sorts of things stem from that. And so they become this vicious cycle of health issues and socioeconomic underclass. And Keith, I mean, how do they even begin to address this? Who is addressing it? And how are they doing it and what net more needs to be done? Well, a couple of examples of people taking action. One is a guy called Jeff Brown in Philadelphia who's been the subject of a recent article um, talking about him. So he uh, is third-generation grocer, but unlike his parents and grandparents, uh, oh, actually, more than that, he's got grand-great-father operated a corner store as well. So, you, you know, this is a person who comes from a dynasty, of corner store operators, this person, the current Jeff Brown, who's now in his late 50s, mid-50s, decided to go particularly after food deserts. In other words, he said he was going to set up store, not in the ordinary places, middle-class, trendy white folk, but to go to the food desert areas because he figured that it, it may be possible to be able to make money out of people who are realizing that they're not getting adequate food. And so this guy has created a network of stores in Philadelphia. And these stores are doing very well indeed, which is why he's subject to this um, national media profile. And he also served as an advisor to uh, US former First Lady, Lady uh, Michelle Obama. Remember, it's worth bearing in mind that for the first time since World War II and Mrs. Roosevelt, we've had vegetables being grown in the White House grounds, and that was under Mrs. Obama, following the example of Mrs. Roosevelt. And so he has an organisation that employs 2,500 people, of whom more than 600 are ex-prisoners. So he is someone who is deliberately recruiting people who have been incarcerated and uh, seeking to give them jobs, because once you're left, uh, once you leave prison, you are forever tainted as a convict, even though you've done your time, and they will then have difficulty getting jobs. So he has operated in Philadelphia. He's had several town hall meetings, which is how the Americans go about gauging public opinion. And he wanted to learn about what people thought should be done for their area. 3,000 people turned out for the community meeting. Imagine that as a number, 3,000. So they, uh, so the, the, the people, most of whom were black, were saying, you know, we needed to have food which is appropriate for us. And so he's then supplying fresh fruit and vegetables. He's employing ex-offenders, six of whom have since made it into management. And one of them, Anthony Jackson, started his jail centres at 17 and was in prison for more than 15 years. And Brown gave him his first job when he was 35 and turned his life around. And now he makes $50,000 a year as a frozen food manager. So he's, he's getting people to eat the right sort of food, is being able to um, uh, create uh, good opportunities for uh, ex-offenders. And also, because his stores are becoming community centres, he's also linking up with healthcare centres as well. So you can get to learn more about, you know, what you should be eating. So it's a really inspiring story. And this is um, 
Jeff Brown. He says, The role of our fathers and mothers played in trying to solve social problems was to make a lot of money and, when close to death, give it to a not-for-profit. He's now created a model which is likely to lead to more social changes because he's doing it his own lifetime, Mm. not leaving it to uh, his uh, bequest to sort out. Instead, he says the entrepreneur should ask, how can I bring my problem-solving abilities to help overcome the many challenges in society? You are showing your team how to be more about more than just making money. This enhancement in the model, often referred to as social entrepreneurship, is a promising way to address society's most pressing challenges, such as poverty. So a really inspiring story. Looking at food deserts got me onto the whole notion of this idea of the food desert, which is a a US government uh, term. And Karen Washington, who's a food justice activist, says that she doesn't like the term food desert and she prefers the term food apartheid. So she's a young black woman and she's really going for a much more uh, expressive uh, account because she says it takes into account the systemic racism permeating America's food system. So what she is talking about, therefore, is the need to talk about food apartheid. I've already talked about redlining, where certain areas were really designated for black folk. And so she has been campaigning for three decades. She had been a physical therapist and saw many of her patients, predominantly people of colour, suffering from diabetes, obesity and hypertension. More than one third of American adults and 48% of African-American adults are obese. And so the treatment always involved medication and surgery as opposed to prevention. And she figures, look, it's much better to go for prevention, which means getting people to eat the right food and also to grow the right food, actually have them out there in community gardens. Remember, we go back to Mrs. Obama using her garden, which is the White House, to grow food. An amazing story. So she then got into the whole business of uh, community organising. And and so she is encouraging a a movement not only to get people away from just uh, eating fast food and sugary drinks, etc., but to get involved with eating fresh fruit and vegetables and also focusing on food sovereignty. In other words, getting people to grow their own food and have the exercise and the social connection. It's a brilliant story doesn't get enough good publicity. You know, we only hear about the bad publicity in the United States and it's a lot of bad publicity there. <laughs> but uh, I don't you... know what you're talking about, Ken. Yeah, but there's a lot of good stuff that is going on. Uh, let me just play devil's advocate. Let's say we get this in order. Yeah. How will it change? How will it change that societal issues Well, here? if everybody was out in the garden growing a bit of food and they're out in their community allotments, for, there's more social connection which is obviously good news, and they're also being healthier. So they're, they're moving around. If you look at the five key factors for uh, longevity, for if you want to live a long life, one, don't smoke. Two, eat the right food. Three, um, move a great deal. Um, not necessarily gymnasia, but just walking around, or in this case, gardening. Number four, you need to have more sleep because we're all sleep-deprived <laughs> in Western society. And number five, um, social connection, a purpose in life, uh, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So these are all good factors. And so in a sense, the community garden movement, which 
um, Karen Washington is proposing, mainly, of course, for people of colour, but, you know, she could also apply it to the white population as well, then it means that you've got people who are socially connected working together. So I found these two very inspiring. She says here that she recently went to the Organic Growers Conference, which is in its 25th year, and someone told me that it was the second year that they had speakers of colour. In other words, the Organic uh, Growers Conference is a white movement, and she is saying, look, we've got to get people of colour involved in these things. And so um, a very inspiring story. So we've got um, white, middle-aged business executive Jeff Brown, and you've got the food activist, person of colour, who talks about food apartheid. Not just the desert, but it's food apartheid. Let me just give you a third example, which I've just come across. This is Marcus Rashford. Now, I know nothing about sport, <laughs> right? So he is Manchester United strikers player. So he's, he's a, a brilliant player and he has recently taken on the British Prime Minister. So Rashford became an instant hero after hitting four goals in his first two games for Manchester United. And he underlined his potential by scoring three minutes into his England debut and has performed wonders for the community during the coronavirus pandemic, culminating in forcing the government to to back down on its decision not to extend free school meals for low-income families in England over the summer holidays. So that Boris Johnson obviously wanted to cut back on money, decided that he wouldn't supply school meals during the the, uh, current summer that we've got in England at the moment. And this uh, young fellow, Marcus Rashford, as I say, I know nothing about sport, but he made the headlines in the British media recently by challenging the Prime Minister. The article here says food poverty, that's yet another title, food apartheid, food desert, food poverty, is a subject close to the heart of Marcus Rashford. So he grew up near Manchester United, um, and he remembers his mother working for the minimum wage and he said he would not uh, have to become an England player if he had not had free school meals when he was younger. So the British government is trying to cut out free school meals. We're back to food poverty again. And he has challenged the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's back down. Now, what I find intriguing is that we've, we've dealt with one story with three angles, if you like, or at least three activities. One is a, a business person who is making a lot of money out of providing groceries in food deserts. Another one is um, female activist Karen Washington, who is campaigning against food apartheid and is talking about the need to uh, have more community gardens and to work with people of colour to encourage them to eat the the right sort of food. And then thirdly, uh, Marcus Rashford of Manchester United, who's taken on the British Prime Minister, and got the British Prime Minister agreed to provide school meals, free school meals, for low-income families in England during the summer holidays. At a time when we are so contemptuous of politicians, here are three individuals who are making a great difference. It's actually completely inspiring, as you just said, and I hope the change happens that you hope for. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.